If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, whether you have a hardback one with you or one on your phone, whatever it is, find Genesis chapter 9. Find Genesis chapter 9. One more quick announcement while you find that. Uh, George and Brenda Southwick will be celebrating, I believe it's it's their 50th anniversary. Uh, What is it, tomorrow? Tomorrow, that's right. And I know we've been trying to reach out for folks to either send them cards. So if you brought a card with you, Laura Shelton will take that. Or feel free to call George, text him this week, give him a, just a, I'm sure he'd appreciate just some encouragement. But that's something for us to celebrate and to honor and to give um, praise to, uh, to see that and to recognize that. So give him a call this week. Feel free to drop by, send him a card, whatever you can do. We really want to celebrate them and... Uh, and, and bring, yeah, and just encourage them this week with that. So Genesis chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.'" He also said, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of God. As we come now to the third and final week of looking at the flood, and actually the second to last week of looking at this section of Genesis, next week will be our last week in this section of Genesis, then we'll take a break and we'll come back uh, in the new year. We find ourselves with Noah as the waters have subsided. He's exited the ark and he is beginning a new life on a new world. And in fact, as we saw last week, we saw that the flood was an act of recreation. God was, was, the world as it was, was dying in the flood, and a new world was rising again out of the waters. We saw how chapter 8 presented the flood as, as receding, the waters receded in the order of the days of creation, showing that God was, was recreating the world. And this was only amplified now as we come to Genesis 9 and we see Noah presented as a new Adam. In fact, that's the central point I want us to see as we think about Genesis 9. You'll see it in your notes that Noah is a new Adam. Noah is a new Adam. I mean, look at the very first words of chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Right? Genesis 1, the same blessing given upon Adam is here given upon Noah. And Genesis 9, verse 7, that sort of bookends this section here, says this, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Adam is a new Noah. And he's given, as you see there first in your notes, the response of certain responsibilities, The responsibilities of Noah were similar to that of Adam. He was to multiply, to fill the earth, to be an image bearer of God, to serve as as a sort of representative of a new humanity. And as we think about it, there are actually, between all of this, instructions that are not just for Noah, but also for us. There are responsibilities that were given to Noah, that we, as, as creatures, as people made in the image of God, also share with him. And we'll see four of those responsibilities this morning. And I'll tell you, many of these aren't necessarily culturally popular things that it means to reflect God's image. Here's first, we're told that one of the responsibilities we share with Adam is to form families. To form families. Isn't that embedded in those verses, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The implication is 
have, have get married and have children and form families to fill the earth. God wanted and continues to want a world full of human beings. Interesting to think about, isn't it? As cool as other creatures in the earth are, God wanted ones full of humans. And he calls us to be fruitful and multiply. And this, I think, means a call upon believers with few exceptions to get married, to have children, and to raise those children to reflect God as he has commanded and repeat and repeat and on and on and on and on the pattern goes. This is what God intends when he creates man in his image. And that's actually what we see Noah doing. Noah, if you look in verse 18, had three sons. Similarly, Adam also had three sons, didn't he? And Noah here, we see in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Here we see, and you'll see in Genesis 10 next week, that it was from these three that they begin to fill the earth with offspring, with children, and it all begins with marriage. And friends, in our day, marriage is under attack. And some of you are probably beginning to think the pastor is going to get political, but I promise nothing I say this morning is intended to be taken as any sort of political statement, but rather purely what the Bible has to say. Consider this, in a 2018 New York Times magazine, there was an article titled, Eight Signs a Monogamous Relationship Isn't For You. And that's two years ago, arguing, here's here's what you should do if you want to give up monogamy, give up having one partner, give up having one spouse, give up having one husband or wife. Here's eight signs, that just shouldn't be your thing. And I read it, and let me say it 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 was a wild thing, and please don't look that up later. I found a poll also of 1,300 U.S. adults from this year. This is this year. And it suggested that one-third, 32% of U.S. adults say that their ideal relationship is non-monogamous to some degree. And that number increases to 43% among millennials, which is my age range, of about 20 to about 40 are the are where the millennials fall in. And add to that in our day, support for and practice of so-called same-sex marriage is on the rise. Even with last month, you probably saw the Pope make headlines for his comments about same-sex unions. This is just a few of the cultural issues surrounding marriage. And let me say, yes, these studies may be shocking to some of us, but I think before we begin to speak much about there, the church needs to begin to speak about some things that might creep into our walls, might creep into our families that may be incorrect about marriage. Let me give you some examples. When I was pursuing Dana's hand in marriage, I had, I think, some well-intentioned Christian men come to me and thought it would be funny to go, no, don't get married. It will ruin your life. And this wasn't a statement about Dana at all, but rather their statement about their feelings about marriage. Consider, men, if we ever refer to our wives as the ball and chain of our life, why should we be surprised when the next generation finds marriage to be a miserable thing when we describe our spouse as a giant weight behind us? 
Friends, we can't complain about the direction of our culture when many of us make marriage out to be a miserable route, don't we? What is, what is interesting, what, what should be increasing to us about this sort of shunning of marriage, it should tell us, I think, it should increase in us less an idea of trying to talk to the culture about these things and more, would it be more of an indictment on maybe the marriages in the church? Friends, think about this. Genesis 9 should lead us to ask, how is my family doing? Regardless of your role, whether you're a child in the family, whether you're the husband, the wife, wherever you are in the family unit, we should consider and ask, how's its health? And pray for and work toward that. We should consider young men and women who are here, are we preparing for families? Preparing for marriage, preparing for life together. Spouses, we should be asking ourselves and our partner and our, and our spouse, our husband, our wife together, how is our marriage? How can we make it better? Genesis 9 calls us to the responsibility to form families and to form healthy families. Second, this text calls us to a responsibility to love children, to love children. As far as children, our culture has got just sort of a wild view, as they often do, about marriage. In 2019, this was in November, the New York Times published an article, this is shocking, it was called The End of Babies. And it was reporting on how Denmark, Denmark's one of the most thriving countries in Europe, has a, currently has a fertility rate that is under the replacement level, and it's been there for decades. Literally, Denmark is dying off due to lack of children. And while, we may, while there are many factors, this opinion piece, I think, got right down to the bottom line at the end of the article. Here's the quote. Look at this. With their basic needs met and an abundance of opportunities at their fingertips, Danes, instead, must grapple with the promise and pressure of seemingly limitless freedom, which can combine to make children an afterthought or an unwelcome intrusion on a life that offers reward and satisfactions of a different kind, an engaging career, esoteric hobbies, exotic holidays. Parents say that children are the most important thing in my life, said Dr. Zieb, one, a father of two. He's a, a doctor and a professional that they're talking through throughout the article. By contrast, those who haven't tried it who cannot imagine the shifts and priorities it produces, nor fathom its reward, see parenting as an unwelcome responsibility. Young people say, having children is the end of my life. Having children is the end of my life. Friends, I think that that's often an idea that's even creeped into among God's people, rather than just simply in the world, and we also should lament as a nation that since 1970s, since the 1970s, there have been nearly 60 million abortions in our nation. Rather than be fruitful and multiply, our world has been crying out to wither and die. And what if the idea that children were a burden wasn't something that was original to the culture, but came from generations of Christian adults who may, have, who may have been well-meaning but often had the idea that we need to put the children away so that we can have church and let the children go over there and be entertained for a while rather than be poured into and discipled and, and stewarded. What, what if we 
as, as Christians, as, as the church global began to see young people as something to steward and celebrate, rather than sometimes we see them as somebody else's problem, sometimes we see them as something, well, a program will take care of it or the pastor will take care of it. What if we saw it as something we were all in this together to help to do? Jesus blessed the children and implored them to come to him, not put them away so that real discipleship can happen. Ask ourselves, what comes out of this is to ask ourselves, how are we loving, whether it be our children or the children around us? Maybe you don't have children yet. Maybe the Lord hasn't given them to you. Maybe you're like me and Dana and you've got a child in heaven right now. I think this is still a call to you. There are ways to pour into children around you, whether it's those in your friends that you have, in the family that you have, in this church body that's around us. Genesis 9 reiterates the responsibility to form families, to love children, and third, it's a responsibility to enjoy God's gifts. Enjoy God's gifts. The text takes an interesting turn off of being fruitful, multiply, And look what he says, verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its Blood. Here we see God tell us with one of the clearest aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God, we're the top of the food chain. We're the top of the food chain. Here we see animals, unlike the couples that seem to follow Noah into this ark, that now they will, have, they will fear and dread us. That animals might attack, might run from, might even try to eat us because ultimately they're scared of us. And I think there's some partial justification here. I mean, look, it says, everything that lives shall be food for you. Who wouldn't be scared of or a little nervous about someone who could eat them, right? And he says, here, the animals are going to be nervous about you, right? And here's the only prohibition we get. Look what he says. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, I don't think Moses has in mind that you can't have your steak medium well. Some people have said that. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. I think it's simply emphasizing that there are some forms of really cruel and crude ways of eating living flesh or consuming blood that aren't things that we should do. The pagans of Moses' day would do this. They would eat raw animals that they had just killed. They would consume blood. I mean, all of this is really gross, right? All of this is really, really disgusting. And I think it ultimately shows that God even values the life of an animal to a point. God even says, hey, treat it with dignity. Treat it with respect. Don't just go and be cruel and unusual with it. Don't eat its blood or its living flesh. And I think this is a word for us to think about. I know, I know that we've got many here that are hunters, and God has given you a good thing, hasn't he? You can go, get you some meat, get you some hide, get you all sorts of good things off of that animal, right? All sorts of good things. And this text is encouraging us to, to do that and to enjoy God's gifts, but also to be careful not to be cruel or to think that just because you can, you have license just to kill everything you see. Just be absolutely brutal. Let's go out and just shoot the whole forest full of things and leave it there. 
to die. I think this text is saying be careful about that. Be careful about not using God's gifts in the way God would command. Yes, eat meat, enjoy it, but don't use it as an excuse to be cruel or unusual or to abuse another creature. And finally, we're given the responsibility to value life. Form families, love children, enjoy God's gifts, and value life. Now, some in our world today might think that I just contradicted myself. You said, hey, I can go eat my, my pig that I've been raising, or and we've got some, some cows behind our house. You say, you can eat those, but then you're talking about valuing life. And from the biblical perspective, those aren't in contradiction at all. Because the Bible makes a clear distinction between man as made in the image of God and the animals that while being valuable and good gifts were created, we were created, Genesis 1 says, to have dominion over the creatures of the world. And this isn't a call to treat animals however we want because the Bible gives us sort of some rules on how to think about that later on. But it does Give us a clear distinction here. And I think this is clearly seen when you consider Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. Look at these. Genesis 9, both 5 and 6. Where both man and animal are addressed here. Look what he says. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And this is an establishment of a principle that's throughout the Bible that I think may, may rub some people kind of wrong or make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, and, and I guess that's okay, but here we see that the Bible gives human life such an infinite and intrinsic value that it says, should a human life be intentionally taken, there is nothing you can do to pay restitution. In the Old Testament, if you were to steal something... You pay them back for it. You pay them back plus some, and you, were, and you had paid restitution. Here we see that human life is of such a value that if human life were intentionally taken, the only possible restitution would be another life. And the Bible is clear about this. The Bible speaks over and over about God's standard of justice for those who would intentionally take another human life. Isn't a long stay in some lame hotel or a large sum of cash? It was death. And it is in Genesis 9 that I think we see the foundations for a government, for the idea of what government should do, and and for justice systems that would come afterward, including the nation of Israel and other similar laws of even our nation, often find their root in Genesis 9, 6. And hear me, this is telling you that whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever culture you're from, whatever color you are, whoever you are, you are made in the image of God. That you were made to reflect him. You were made by him to, to tell the world what he's like. Let me tell you, I saw the sunrise this morning, and the sunrise wasn't made in the image of God. It's beautiful, but that doesn't bear God's image. Our cats and our puppy, as great as they are, they don't bear God's image. We do. As humanity, God has set an imprint of who he is in us, and that means we are valuable and irreplaceable. 
Friends, you may hear all the time that you aren't valuable. There's nothing different about you. You're of no value. All you are is just stuff and you can go away. But no, the Bible tells us that being made in his image means that we are valuable and irreplaceable and have infinite worth and value that cannot be replaced. And part of this being an image bearer means, yes, we have value, but it also means God has put us here with purpose and with responsibilities. He put Noah there, and he's put us here to form families, love children, enjoy God's gifts, and value life. And so Noah here as a new Adam is seeking to do this and seeking to be the representative of this new creation, and things seem all good, don't they? But that doesn't last long, does it? We see the responsibilities of Adam, and next we move to the, or to the responsibilities of Noah. Then we see the fall of Noah. The fall of Noah. Notice with Noah when he gets off the boat what he does. Look actually back in chapter 8, real fast. Chapter 8, verse 20. Look what it says. Noah gets off the boat, and then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, look at this, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Didn't Genesis 6, 5 say something very, very similar pre the flood and now we're post the flood and he's saying, hey, some stuff hadn't changed. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. Notice Noah comes off the boat. And he worships. Let me tell you, if I made my way through a flood in a wooden boat with all these animals, friends, I probably would worship too, right? <laughs> I'd, I would celebrate and give praise to God. And he offers a sacrifice, and, and God's pleased with it. And underneath it all, we see that the flood may have changed the world, but the flood didn't fix the problem. The flood may have changed the world, but the flood didn't fix the problem. Flip over chapter 9, verse 20, and look at this. We get a picture provided for us of Noah. And here we see that in verse 20, Noah, who's hundreds of years old by this point, became, began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Now, this might seem weird to some of us, right? We're like, what's he doing planting a vineyard? Is this some sort of like bucket list thing that Noah always had? And he's like, well, since I literally survived the end of the world, I might as well start up my vineyard business. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. Noah wasn't living one of his dreams. I think Noah was doing much what Adam did. Remember, Adam was placed in a garden. Noah now placed in a garden in a sense, right? He's, he, he planted a vineyard and he began to work and keep to cultivate and to protect the soil he was placed on. And much like Adam, the fruit of his garden is going to get him in trouble. Look at this, verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. <laughs> Noah, it's, al- it's almost ironic and almost comical, but also sad at the same time, right? When you see Noah get himself a vineyard, and then he indulges too much in his own vineyard and ends up drunk and without clothes in his tent. <laughs> and you see this. And, the, and again, we see here that the text is showing us that the flood didn't fix the problem. Noah still had an issue of sin in his heart. And just like Adam, he ended up naked 
and ashamed, didn't he? He ended up naked and ashamed. And look what verse 22 says. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Adam was naked and ashamed, but it was just his wife. Noah was naked and ashamed, and the whole family got to know about it. And they all got to know about it because his son went and told them. Again, this is so interesting here, and it mirrors, again, what Genesis was doing in those early accounts where then we follow with cursing and blessing. And it wasn't Noah who got either of them. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine. I love how that's put, by the way. He awoke from his wine, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Cain, or cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, you go, Preacher, what's going on here? Just shoot it to me straight. Here's what's going on Ham, in seeing his father's nakedness, told his brothers and didn't do anything about it. That's clear. He went and he told everybody, Hey, look, look what Noah's, look what happened to him, guys, but didn't do anything to help him. He, it was an attitude of dishonor toward his father. Rather, you see, Shem and Japheth seek to protect and cover Noah in his fall. It's interesting. If you read here how they cover him, they enter backward with this, with this big covering over them, and they do it in such a way as to never look at him in his state. They're very careful. Let's back up. Let's not look at him. Let's not seek to dishonor our father in that way. Rather than honor his imperfect father, Ham dishonored his heavenly father by highlighting Noah's shame, exposing him to further dishonor, and a curse was pronounced both on Ham and on future generations. And Ham should have helped cover him, but rather he did everything possible to expose him. And all of this is here to tell us about the pervasiveness of sin. The pervasiveness of sin and ultimately the solution for it. The flood couldn't do it. The flood couldn't and didn't fix the problem of the human heart. And friends, some of us believe that sin and injustice could be curbed if we just have a new society or a new start. Let's just wipe it all out and start again. And guys, we'll get to a better place than we are now. Well, the flood shows that ain't going to work. The flood already got our, that are, that's already been tried. We have a generation of folks crying out to just tear it all down and let's start again. And friends, the flood is clear evidence that that isn't going to achieve the goal that they're going to achieve because new externals will not curve sin. We need new internals. A new heart is the only solution to sin. We've seen the responsibilities of Noah. We've seen the fall of Noah. And in the midst of all of this, we see the covenant with Noah. We see the covenant with Noah. And it is in the midst of all of this sin, we see the beauty of the covenant made with him in verses 8 to 17. Let's read all this again. 
Verse 8 to 17, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth and a bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I'll see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. A few things to notice, and you'll see these in your notes. Notice the scope of the covenant. Notice the scope of the covenant. This was a covenant made with all creation. All creation. Noah, his offspring, and all the creatures. There's no other covenant in the Bible where the animals are participants in the covenant. Now, you've got the covenant that's made later on in the book of Exodus and Leviticus where the animals are a part of it because they're going to get sacrificed, right? But that's not how they're participating here. God's even making a promise to the cows out behind our house that he ain't going to flood the earth again. It's all creation. Most covenants are between individuals or groups of people, but this one includes everyone, everyone, even in this room. Next, we see the promise of the covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. I'm not going to disrupt the created order as I did in the flood again. Chapter 8, verse 22 says it this way. He says this, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. As long as the world remains, seasons will continue, cycles will remain. We have no need to fear of a global flood ever again. And God has given us a regular reminder of this. We see the scope, all creation, the promise, never to flood the earth again, the sign of the rainbow. We see the sign of the covenant, a rainbow. And a rainbow that comes after the rain is a reminder that no matter what the rain and the storm may do, it's not like the flood of Noah's day. And it's interesting to see the contrast here because God says, I'm going to look and I'm going to see the rainbow and I'm going to remember my covenant. Doesn't that sound kind of like before the flood? We heard that it, the, the Bible said that God saw the wickedness of man and then he flooded the earth. So God's going to see this beautiful rainbow in the sky and show kindness, see his kindness. Because even though the same wickedness remained, he still initiated this covenant in kindness. Finally, notice the extent of the covenant. Verse 16, is, we're told it's an everlasting covenant. It's forever It's not going anywhere. And God has made this promise to you. He's kept it for thousands of years, and he'll keep it as long as the earth is still here. 
See the kindness and mercy of God. See his promise being fulfilled. He keeps his covenant and his word. And in all of this, Genesis 9 is a huge chapter, isn't it? There's a lot packed in this. What are we to do with it? We've seen a lot about it, but what are we supposed to do now with it? We're not told, we're told in the Bible not to just be hearers and knowers of the word, but doers. Let me offer you three closing ways you can do Genesis 9. You can, you can do this. Here's applications for you. First, Genesis 9 should cause us to reevaluate our definition of the good life. To reevaluate our definition of the good life. You'll find that in the culture and in the world and even in the church, people will sometimes try to sell you a bill of goods and make you promises. But you need to be careful. Young people, hear me. I'm not much older than a lot of you. You're going to hear from all sides that you'll enjoy your marriage more if you sleep around a little before you settle down. Don't believe it. These people are lying to you. You're going to hear all sorts of things that, well, you'll just be more happy if you have all the money and comforts that you can have. That new, that new iPhone, that new game system, if you just had all of this money, it doesn't matter how you get it, that will make you happy. Let me tell you, I remember there was a song back in the 80s that tells us the truth about having more money, doesn't it? More money? More problems, right? And friends, there are people out there who have everything you don't and are the most anxious and miserable people out there. Be careful not to make your definition of the good life about more money, about the right relationship, about the right person, about having all of these things. Because, friends, that isn't going to get you the good life. Whatever you're searching, the peace that you're searching for. That isn't going to do it. The good life isn't found in loud applause, but in quiet service. Maybe the good life isn't found in late night, Saturday night parties, but in Sunday morning worship with your family. Maybe it isn't in embracing less responsibility, but in embracing God's responsibilities for your life. Whatever those what might be as we look at his word and being led by his spirit to do the best that we can. Friends, Genesis 9 offers us a vision of the good life that the world out there and even some in the walls of, of, of the body of Christ despise and will tell you to find elsewhere. They'll go, don't listen to that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But friends, I, it doesn't matter what I'm telling you. Look at what God's word is telling you about these things. Genesis 9 should cause us to reevaluate our definition of the good life. Second, Genesis 9 should cause us to realign our hopes for change. Realign our hopes for change. If the flood couldn't get rid of the world, of the, couldn't rid the world of all injustices, hear me, next week's election won't either. No matter what happens, friends, it ain't going to be able to purify the human heart. And maybe it's just showing us that we need something or someone to help us do this. Our hope for transformation is found in new representation. Found in new representation. Noah, like Adam, as I said, was representing a new humanity. And much like Adam, he proved to be unable to save and unable to transform the human heart. 
And friends, all of us, every person that's born is represented by one of two people. Either Adam is your representative and his sin has, 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 has followed with you and you're following in his path and he is representing you. Or you're represented by Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his perfect life in your place. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. It says this, For by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Notice that tiny word, in. It's so important. You can be in Adam or in Christ. Two representatives, two different realities, two different places they're headed. And thus, that's why we find such good news in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that tells us that in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. New representation is the only way to get true transformation. You can't produce this just by pulling up your bootstraps. Friends, you can't get a heart change simply by checking off the religious boxes. Well, I came to church, I gave my tithe, I read my Bible, I prayed at dinner, I'm just doing all the things just to check it off. You can't get it even by changing your outward appearance. Some people think, well, I get a haircut, I get some new clothes, all my life will be better. No, you'll just be a better looking version of what you had before, right? None of that's going to change the inward parts of your life. Transformation isn't simple moral reformation. It isn't just cleaning up your life. It isn't religious conformity, strictly doing certain things good works over and over. It isn't even greater confidence or self-esteem. Transformation is a heart that once hated God, now pursuing after God in the opposite direction of the way they were going, and it is found in Christ alone. Friends, who represents you? All of us are born in Adam, but we need to be born again in Jesus, and that's why Jesus came to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and to rise again so that you can die to self, die to your sin and yourself, and rise again to new spiritual life and look toward a future when, though you may die and go in the grave, you will rise again out of that grave to new life. He offers forgiveness to all of us who have not lived out as his image bearers perfectly, and he promises not just to fully forgive us, but to give his spirit to us and enable us to walk more as he would have us walk. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus can forgive you and make you new today. But you call out to him where you are. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Realign our hopes for change. And finally, Genesis 9 should reignite our hearts in worship. We need to kind of end where we begin. Noah, though he failed, did offer something important for us to note. He got off the boat, and the first thing he did was worship. I remind you, Genesis 8.20, the Noah built an altar to the Lord. And friends, we, like Noah, have much to worship God for. Isn't November a season of thankfulness? We're supposed to be thinking all about, although it seems like we jumped from Halloween and now there's Christmas music suddenly playing. There's another holiday that's supposed to come at the end of this month, right? That we think about and we're thankful for. And I think Thanksgiving is an intrinsically Christian holiday. Because friends, who do you have to be thankful for for the beautiful weather 
for the family that you have, for the earth that you're in, for the wonderful city of Cades that you're at. Who brought this to you? You didn't do that. <laughs> you didn't do all of this. Your family didn't do it. Who are you thankful for? Thanksgiving is a, partic- is a particularly Christian idea as we give thanks to things that we had no contribution to. Have we given thanks to God for Genesis 9, that we're made in his image and therefore have been given immeasurable value and worth? Have we praised God for his good gifts of marriage, for children and friends that he allows us to eat bacon? Yes, right? (laughs) Friends, we've got a lot to be thankful for. Have you given thanks for the covenant that God made that he secured that the world will never be flooded again? No matter how bad the rain was this weekend, me and two guys were loading a bunch of heavy stuff down our apart- down my apartment stairs, and then you have a, a walkway probably from here to the door to get to the parking lot. We're carrying all this heavy stuff in the pouring down rain that was happening. And no matter how bad that was, one, Noah definitely had it worse. But as I carried this down, something struck me. Friends, we take rain for granted. We take rain for granted. See, Genesis 9 changed something. In Noah's day, people feared the rain because could you imagine after it flooded once, you probably think it's going to happen again. You flooded the earth, you would think, I have something to dread here. But God, in his covenant to him, said, no, don't dread this. This is a good thing. This is a good gift. This is something to be thankful for. Anyone here who farms or relies on the land knows what I'm talking about. You celebrate the rain. And you can never get enough of it often, can we? We need more and more to grow more crops. The land relies on the rain. And the covenant with Noah is a reminder that rain shouldn't produce dread or fear, but rather thankfulness because it is a gift to us. And friends, this is how Jesus works. He flips things on their head. He flips the script. He took a cross that was meant for death and brought life out of it. He went in a grave and he came out again three days later. And he can bring life to you no matter where you are or what you're doing through you calling upon his name. And if you want to talk more with someone about Jesus today, I'm here. There's others who would love to talk to you more and help you to find life in the midst of whatever dead things may be in your life. But today, are we thankful people for all of this? Are we thankful people for all that we've seen, that God is just, that God has made us, and that he's made us with these responsibilities that, yes, may feel heavy, but are here for our joy? Have we ever thought that God's not some sort of killjoy just giving us these things to do to make us miserable, rather because he might actually know what's good for us and we might not know what's the best for us? I know it's shocking to think about, right? But may Genesis 9 cause us to trust God and to rethink about where we're pursuing joy in our life. May it cause us to look toward Jesus as our perfect representative and as the rescue from the floodwaters of death and sin. Let's pray together. Father God, we're just so thankful for your kindness. You are so good. Thank you for your covenant not to flood the earth again. We don't have to fear the rainwaters. It might locally flood. We might get a lot of water in one place. But you're never going to just flood the earth and start all over again. But you do have a promise of a day when you're coming again. 
And it won't be with water this time, and it, it will be with fire to renew the earth and to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And we long and hasten for that day and ask that we would be found in you as our ark, as our representative, as our hope in these moments. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice or who's watching this, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself in these moments. Lord, help us to reevaluate what our hope is, where we find answers to life's biggest questions. Help us reevaluate what we think the good life looks like. Help us to realign our hopes that we need to be born again to a new heart, regardless of how we've been born or how we might be now. We need new life. And help us just to worship you and make much of you together. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.